Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John chapter 1 and pick up at verse 35. John chapter 1, verse 35. This is the Word of the Lord. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us your wisdom and your light. Father, as we come to this passage and come to your word, we ask that the Holy Spirit would be at work in us so that we might have illumination from him and that we would be Uh, not merely hearers of your word, but doers of it. So, Father, bless us as your word is preached. Bless every one of the words of my mouth and all of our uh, meditations, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So, again, we're with John the Baptist. And notice the scene on this day has John standing with two of his disciples. Right? These are John's disciples. Uh, John had a group of men, as, as we'll see in the early parts of the Gospels before John uh, is martyred, um, who followed him just as Jesus had disciples who followed him. Uh, this is God's normal method of working. Someone testifies to Jesus and those who receive that message join together and serve Christ as a unit, right? This is how uh, the church comes together. Uh, There's an encouragement in our united combined effort together and um, it, it must have been difficult for Uh, John the Baptist to live in the wilderness, right? A lone voice, he's known as. He lived in the wilderness, and yet now at this time of his life, there's a group of uh, disciples that are following him as he's beginning to call Israel to repentance, as he's trying to uh, prepare the way uh, for the Messiah who has now uh, come, as we read in this passage. We see his testimony bearing fruit, and uh, this fruit results in congregations. This fruit results in disciples following. 
And so as we looked at last time, John the Baptist's message here is very simple and very clear. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. He points to Jesus as that substitute ram. He points to Jesus as <clears throat> the Passover, as the sacrifices of the, uh, of the Old Testament that pointed forward. And so John's emphasis points towards Jesus Humility, meekness, condescension um, as the Lamb of God. He was and is the Lamb that was slain. He lowered himself so that he might be exalted by his Father. He took on the weakness of humanity, and by that incredible lowering, he becomes a merciful, faithful, and sympathetic high priest for us by his lowering himself he becomes that high priest that deals with our mess right now note what the result of john the baptist uh, what results from john the baptist's testimony he shouts behold the lamb of god and two of his disciples do what they leave john and follow jesus they leave john and follow jesus ryle says um that testimony was a little seed, but it bore mighty fruits. Little seed, mighty fruits. That is often how people come to Christ. It isn't through sophistication of arguments, grandiose displays of logic, perfect and reasonable proofs, right? Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And here's John saying, behold, the Lamb of God. And they're like, boom, I'm going to follow Jesus. Do you remember the book, um, Darwin on Trial? This popped into my head as I was preparing the sermon, Darwin on Trial. It was sort of the, the first book that took on Darwin head on, and, and it was written by Philip Johnson, who was the sort of grandfather of the intelligent design movement. I mean, he, he was um, one of the, the early guys. Uh, I think it was written in the early 90s, so 91, something like that. And... Um, it, I remember it as the first book that really seriously took on the tenets of, of macroevolution. And so I, I read that in the late 90s. It gave me some confidence. And uh, anyway, in the introduction of that book, I think that's where I read it, he describes his conversion. He came to faith during the presentation hour of his five-year-old daughter's vacation Bible school. This is a guy who clerked at the Supreme Court. This is a guy who sat on the faculties of this and that. And, you know, he was a muckety-muck. And he was converted at his five-year-old daughter's vacation Bible school when he heard those scriptures sung. Uh, simple statements of scripture sank into his heart. And that heart had been prepared by the Holy Spirit to receive those scriptures. Augustine. Think of Augustine. He was converted when he heard school children chanting a, 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 a song, tole lege, take up and read. Uh, they're just repeating that phrase over and over. And he's like, well, maybe I should take up and read. And so he takes up the word of God. He opens it randomly. He puts his finger down, and it's Romans 13, 13 which if you know anything about Augustine's life up to that point, he was a sensualist. He lived for his lusts. And 
Romans 13, 13 is, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And he writes about that time in his confessions. He says, I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to. For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. That one verse, that one convicting verse, that one verse that doesn't even mention the Lamb of God, right? It just, it's like, stop sinning. And the light of Christ comes into him at that point. And from that point on, his, his trajectory is much different than it was. He still had had uh, he still fought sins and fought his lusts, but he was now uh, his mother's prayers had been answered for him, and he now set out on a life to glorify God. And all it took for these two disciples of John is the simple testimony, uh, his simple testimony, right? Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. That should give you courage to witness. That, that should give you courage to witness. Honestly, street preachers should just go out on the street and read God's word. There is no reason to add all the other gobbledygook, right? Um, but that, that, that we, should, we should, as a church, go out on the street corners and read God's word and see what fruit comes from it, right? But this should give us courage in our witness. We don't have to convince. All we have to do is lob out scripture. Just throw it out there. Lob it out and see what God does it does with it. Um, it's God's powerful work word, and if the spirit is at work, that spoken word will have an immense effect. So each day, each day carry a verse with you. Just waiting, waiting for the time when God calls you to just lob it out there. Just carry a verse with you, right? And um, Ryle describes the immense power in this kind of testimony. He says, to the world such testimony may seem weakness and foolishness, yet like the ram's horns before whose blasts the walls of Jericho fell down, this testimony is mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. The story of the crucified Lamb of God has proved in every age the power of God unto salvation. Those who have done most for Christ's cause in every part of the world have been men like John the Baptist. They have not cried, behold me. They have not cried, behold the church. They have not cried, behold the ordinances. They've cried, behold the Lamb. If souls are to be saved, men must be pointed directly to Christ. Behold the Lamb of God. So you don't have to prove that Jesus is the Christ. You just have to say this verse and allow the Spirit to do the work. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Maybe you just have that verse ready. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Just repeat that to the grocery clerk, right? Repeat that to the guy you stumble into on the street. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Do you know Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's another one. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Now our passage moves to Jesus, the Messiah. This is the first words we have from him in this gospel. When the two disciples of John begin following Jesus, Jesus wants to know why they are following. And he asks them, what do you seek? The first thing that must be noted is, again, the the humility of John. He does not... um, he does not object to these men leaving him and following Jesus. We, we read nothing of that. Uh, this is John, as he says, diminishing so that Christ may increase. He is happy to play second fiddle, right? They left him, and they've gone with Jesus. Jesus, of course, knew as he's speaking with these men what what was in their hearts and what they were seeking. He knew this, but he asked the question, what do you seek? To engage them, right? To make them reflect, which would, in the end, encourage them, right? The question amounts to, why are you following me? Right? What do you hope to find in me? Are you seeking, are you seeking a temporal king? Are you... Are you seeking fame and fortune? Are you seeking to be stimulated intellectually? Are you seeking ease and comfort? Are you bored and just seeking something to do, right? Or, or are you seeking the only remedy for your sin? Are you seeking the lamb slain? Which is what John had been testifying to. And so their answer, they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Huh? Where are you staying? Um, this could be a deflection, right? That's, that's always what we're... When you answer a question with a question, you're, that's always what it is. You're trying to deflect the question. You don't want to answer the question, so you answer, answer a question back. But more likely, I think this is their way of saying, well, let's sit down and talk about it. Let's sit down and talk about it. This, this is important to us. This is something that we don't want to just flippantly talk about so let's sit down and talk about it where where are you staying so that we can do that Um, we heard John's testimony and now we want to know more Uh, Calvin John Calvin in his commentary thinks along these lines he writes there are very many who smell the gospel at a distance only and thus allow Christ suddenly to disappear and all that they have learned concerning him to pass away And though those two persons did not at that time become his ordinary disciples, yet there can be no doubt that during that night he instructed them more fully so that they soon afterwards became entirely devoted to him. Right there, but that opening phrase, what he says, there are very many who smell the gospel at a distance and thus allow Christ to suddenly disappear. These guys are like, no, we need to sit down with you. We want to be close. We want to, we want to learn as much as we can, right? I mean, how many of us are just smelling Christ at a distance right now in our lives, right? Smelling Christ at a distance, doing minimal effort to learn about the lamb that was slain. Um, eventually, that the distance will be so great that you will, there will be no more aroma of the gospel in your life. So these two men were curious, and they did not suppress that curiosity. I think introverts often miss out 
Introverts often miss out because they constantly are suppressing their curiosity. Because curiosity gets you into trouble, right? Curiosity killed the cat. Curiosity means opening up to people and talking to people and, and engaging in things. But introverts are always suppressing their, um, their curiosity. They're not having the conversations that would lead to their increase. But these two men take a different step, and they, they say, well, where are you staying? We're going to come stay with you. We're going to sit down with you. We want to speak with you in a setting more conducive to a long conversation. And that's the kind of curiosity that leads to spiritual growth. Right? These two are exhibiting a, a, that, a bold kind of inquisitiveness. How does Jesus respond to their question? With, with great welcome. Come and you will see. Come. He says to them, come. He doesn't deny them. He just invites them. Come and you will see. And these two men, what a blessing, right? To, they got to spend that evening and that night with the Lamb of God. The Word of God who became flesh and made his dwelling among them. Where did they end up? Some humble home, maybe some cave, uh, some unremarkable place. We, we don't know, but we can assume it was humble. And what an amazing evening it must have been speaking with the Messiah. What did they talk about? Did, did Jesus answer his first question, what, what do you seek? We have to assume so, but we don't know. Uh, God has not given us the details of that conversation. Right? But jumping down to verse 41, we see that one of the men who emerges from that conversation says with clarity, we have found the Messiah. Right? So likely he has proven to them through the scriptures that he is the Messiah. Clarity came from that conversation about the identity of Jesus. We learn the identity of the man who was there uh, at Jesus' dwelling place. It was the Apostle Andrew, brother of Peter. Right, so this is the Apostle Andrew. Andrew has two wonderful characteristics. On John's testimony, he followed Jesus. On that simple testimony, behold the Lamb of God, he followed Jesus. And after this conversation with Jesus, what does he do? He goes out and he tells others about Jesus, starting with his own sibling. Starting with his own family, which may have been the hardest place to go if, you know, family dynamics of the modern day have any bearing on what it was like then. Um, how does Andrew do this? He tells Peter they have found the Messiah, and then he leads him physically to Jesus' presence. Uh, Jesus then, and this is, now this is, so Andrew, we don't read much about in the rest of Scripture. I mean, certainly compared to Peter. I mean, along, Andrew leads Peter to the Lord. And the first thing that happens here, you look, look at the text, is it says, Jesus looked at him. I can imagine it was a long gaze, right? A pause and a long gaze. Jesus knows this Peter. Right? And he knows what's coming, and he knows, knows um, 
He knows the importance and the blessing and the, the sin of this man. And, the, and what things he would suffer for him in his death. And then there are those first words to Peter, you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Cephas is just the Aramaic uh, of the, the Greek Petros. Aramaic was the language that they would have been speaking, the common spoken tongue at the time. And so he's just, he's just using the spoken language Cephas in the place of uh, Petros. And it means a piece of rock. That's what it means. Peter, Cephas, a piece of rock. Now, what is Jesus doing here? He's naming Peter. Right? He's naming Peter. This is your name. What is significant about naming? The one who names has authority over the one named, just as Adam had authority over the animals which he named. Jesus is claiming Peter as his own and claiming claiming a command over Peter through the rest of his days. And so what we see in this man is his transformation by the Holy Spirit from a, a naturally impulsive, unsteady, unstable man into a firm, solid stone of a man who would be a leader in the early church and then eventually die for his faith, refusing as we're told, to be crucified like Jesus because he didn't think that he was honorable enough to die the same way, so he has to be crucified upside down. That transformation of Peter would be very painful. Peter would be attacked by Satan. He would deny Jesus when Jesus was most forsaken when Jesus most needed the encouragement of his disciples he would deny him and then he would need restoration from Jesus before he became that rock notice that Peter the rival uh, Peter is the rival of the writer of this gospel as well Peter and John had some sort of rivalry. John records that he got to the tomb faster than Peter, right? I mean, there, there seems to be some rivalry between John the Apostle and Peter. The, Peter. Um, but notice that in John's gospel, Peter bookends the whole book. I mean, it, it, he's at the very beginning and the very end. Which is very interesting to me and shows a love that developed between John and Peter. So from the start of Jesus' ministry, there's Peter. And then the last part of this gospel is this painful but fruitful scene. You remember it. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, it hits me every time. Do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, 
you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them, the one who had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? What about John the Apostle? What about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore the saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? But three years of life with Jesus, and still here at the end, Jesus is telling Peter, you follow me. You follow me. Don't turn away. Don't go elsewhere. Tend my sheep, you follow me. Which is to say that we all need constant encouragement to follow Christ. The Apostle Peter, who lived with Jesus for three years and was trained by him and heard sermons from those, his, his golden mouth, right, needed that encouragement. We do much more. If it was true of the Apostle Peter, the rock, it is true of us. Each and every worship service, each and every Bible study, triple B, prayer meeting, daily time in the Word, privately, is another opportunity for Jesus to say, by means of the Spirit working in you, you follow me. I need to be reminded of that every day. You follow me. You follow me. Don't follow the world. Don't follow your temptations. Don't don't wander away. You follow me. What becomes of those who don't have those constant reminders? Well, they're in danger of falling away from Christ. The apostles needed these reminders, and we don't. We don't somehow. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Day after day, constant reminder. We are so pathetically weak and sinful that we need reminders every 14 seconds. But that's generous, right? We need constant reminders to follow Jesus. Constant reminders. Where are you going to get that? You're going to get that by being with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're going to get that from the Word of God. That's it. Now, having walked through the passage, I want to conclude with this. Calvin, in his commentary, makes this point, and I think it, it should be our takeaway from this passage. Here's what he says. The design of the evangelist down to the end of the chapter is to inform us how gradually the disciples were brought to Christ. Here he relates about Peter, and afterwards he will mention Philip and Nathaniel. 
The circumstance of Andrew immediately bringing his brother expresses the nature of faith, which does not conceal or quench the light, but rather spreads it every direction. Andrew has scarcely a spark, and yet by means of it, he has scarcely a spark, but by means of it, he enlightens his brother. Woe to our indolence, therefore, if we do not, after having been fully enlightened, endeavor to make others partakers of the same grace. We may observe in Andrew two things which Isaiah requires from the children of God, namely, that each should take his neighbor by the hand, and next, that he should say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and he will teach us. That's what we should all do to our neighbor. Grab them by the hand and say, come, let us go to the Lord. Calvin continues, he says, For Andrew stretches out the hand to his brother, but at the same time he has this object in view, that he may become a fellow disciple with him in the school of Christ. We ought also to observe the purpose of God, which determined that Peter, who was, far, who was to be far more eminent, was brought to the knowledge of Christ by the agency and ministry of Andrew, that none of us, however excellent, and so he's, he's saying, okay, Peter was this eminent apostle. Andrew, eh, you know, we don't learn much about him. He just does not have the position of Peter. But it was Andrew who led Peter to the Lord. And so he says, uh, based on that, that none of us, however excellent, may refuse to be taught by an inferior. For that man will be severely punished for his peevishness, or rather for his pride, who through his contempt of a man will not deign to come to Christ. Right? So, so what, he's, what he's saying is, wouldn't it have been terrible if Peter had said, look, little brother, you know, you can talk to me about some things, but don't talk to me about my faith and about Jesus. Because you're just a puny, untaught, you're not even a good fisherman. And you're going to tell me about the creator of the world. When I came to faith in Christ, it was the summer of 1993. I was an arrogant college guy. I was asked to be a counselor at the Charlotte Youth Symphony Orchestra summer camp. And a courageous high school female harpist took me on. I don't know how old she was, 15. I was probably 19. And she pointed me toward the scriptures and confronted my sinful behavior. And through those humble means, I was led to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, it's, it's kind of embarrassing even to say it. You know? I mean, I have, I have a doctorate. Right? Reverend Doctor. I was led to Christ by someone I had never met who was a mousy little harpist who loved the Lord and was willing to listen to my foul mouth, try to refute everything she said. And she finally got fed up with me and said, go read James chapter 3 because your tongue is wicked. And I read James and I fell under conviction and came to the Lord. <laughs> You know, so that's all she did. That's all she did. She, she at times spoke the word to me, but most often she just said, you know, 
I'd say something and she's like, well, you should maybe go read this in the Word of God. Might have some answers for you. (laughs) Oh, man. Perhaps we get too complicated in our witness and we should use less of our own words while relying on the few potent words of God. Share the word. Not your opinions, not your views, not your judgments, not your observations. They're all mundane. They're all powerless. But the word of God is not. Tell the people you are witnessing to to come and see Jesus and then lead them by the hand to the word of God. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's it. That's a powerful tool, isn't it? It's powerful. And yet we think in our witness that we have to use winsome argumentation. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That's amazing. When you you share the word of God, it's God sending that word out to accomplish his purpose. You're just a measly little vessel that God gets to work through. Secondary means, right? You're just a vessel that God works through. And so leave off the conspiracy theories. Leave off what you think about this or that. Leave off talking about current events. Or don't leave those things off, but make them a path as quickly as you can to get to the word of God. I just hate small talk. I'm sorry. I'm terrible at small talk. Do you guys know that about me? You should at this point. You know me. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Uh, You can affirm it, but, you know, not. (laughs) But if I have something to talk about, I can stand in front of a room full of people and talk for 45 minutes or an hour or however long it's been. But, but, this, but let this be our takeaway. Let the example of Andrew, who, who believed when he just heard John the Baptist testify, behold, the Lamb of God. And then Andrew goes to his brother and says, we've found the Messiah, come and see. Right? Let it, let, let's really wake up in the morning and review that verse that you're going to have in hand the whole day. And, and share it with with everybody you see, right? I mean, given some context, you, you, you know, you're going to be looked on as weird anyway, but you might just not want to walk up to somebody and, you know. Um, but given some context, some conversation you're having with somebody, when, whenever you memorize scripture, don't you find that when you, you, when you have a conversation with somebody, it's like, man, that was the perfect thing for me to be memorizing because now I can work it into this and, it, and it's 
just right for the setting. And so in the morning, think of that verse, have it with you, and then don't be afraid to share it with those who are superior to you in every respect, in authority, in knowledge, in intelligence. No, this word is more powerful than any man's intellect, right? It's more powerful than any other force, right? And so share that word. That's what we should take away from this. Let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, I, I pray first of all and, and ask that you would, neglect, uh, you would forgive us for neglecting the word, for the way that we have not had it ready, that we have not taken up the sword of the Spirit. And Father, I pray that that, that's, that foolishness would end, that we would be ready to give a defense, ready to share your word, ready to have that power come forth from us by simple words spoken. I pray that we would be encouraged to see fruit come from this and the Holy Spirit work. I pray that we would not be embarrassed and hold our tongues, but that we would be ready, that we'd be, we would be conscious of the fact that you, wherever we are, you have put us there as your ambassador, as your child. And I pray that we would be ready to speak your word. And so I pray for those who have been not studying and not reading the word that they would get back to it and faithfulness. And Father, I pray for uh, those who uh, are, who, who just, just don't like speaking with strangers. I pray that you would give them boldness, courage, strength to do this work. Father, we pray that we would so delight in our salvation that we would long for others to come to know you. That would be our delight, that we would, we would be thrilled with every opportunity we have to speak of our Savior. And so fill our hearts with love, fill our hearts with gratitude towards you, fill our hearts with an evangelistic zeal that, that derives from our faith. Our Father, we, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.